Welcome to the Commentary Magazine Daily Podcast. Today is Tuesday, November 17th, 2020. I'm John Podhortz, the editor of Commentary Magazine. With me, as always, Associate Editor Noah Rothman. Hi, Noah. Hi, John. Senior Writer Christine Rosen. Hi, Christine. Hi, John. And Executive Editor Abe Greenwald. Hi, Abe. Hi, John. So, uh, two big stories in the last four or five days relating to the United States, Israel, and Iran have broken. Uh, one over the weekend about how three or four months ago, uh, the number two figure in Al Qaeda was assassinated apparently by Israeli agents on a street in Tehran in his car, uh, thus giving the lie to the idea that Iran and Al Qaeda are not in alliance together. Uh, be- the argument being that since Iran is Shia and Al Qaeda is Sunni, that they don't have anything in common. And then the second story, which came out last night, says that we now have intelligence that uh, Iran is enriching uranium at an incredibly rapid clip, and that at a meeting to discuss this, the President of the United States inquired about a military option to deal with this matter, which would presumably involve striking Natanz, the Iranian nuclear facility, uh, where the enrichment would be taking place. Uh, this story... Whatever's left of it. Whatever's left of it. Well, you know, the whole point about... It, yeah, because it was bunker-busted already. Um, anyway, the story seems to be framed or have been framed in a way to make it look like Trump is just a, you know, a psychopathic lunatic that wants to blow up Iran rather than a story about how Iran is enriching uranium at an incredibly rapid clip just at a time that Israel and the and Sunni countries in the Gulf are actually establishing formal diplomatic relations, a connection that has started largely uh, out of their common interest in uh, blocking Iran's irredentist imperial and millenarial ambitions. So no, what's, what's, what's going on here? There are some on the right who are convinced that Joe Biden's caveats about re-engaging in negotiations with Iran over its nuclear deal, some iteration of the JCPOA, the Iran nuclear accords. Um, they're, they're satisfied by Joe Biden putting the caveat on that, that at least we wouldn't do that unless Iran enters back into compliance with the agreement, meaning that it adheres to uh, the caps on enriched uranium. Uh, I am not convinced by that. I don't think that that will prove much of an obstacle in the event that the administration, the incoming administration really does want to re-engage in those negotiations. They will say, well, you can't re-enter into compliance until we're in compliance and everybody's got to be in compliance and we got to get the uranium down anyway. And how do you do that without negotiations? It's an easy one to renege on. So I'm not, I'm not convinced that that some people are, I'm not. Um, Nevertheless, you know, the theory abroad that seems to be the most uh, convincing is that all these leaks are coming out in order to stay Joe Biden's hand and convince him to not adopt um, Barack Obama's foreign policy. And there are a lot of pressures on the Biden administration to do just that. I don't suspect that he will. For example, we're seeing out of um, the administration talk about uh, increasing um, American troop presence in Europe partly to contrast with uh, Donald Trump. Donald Trump has drawn down an American troop presence on the European continent. But so too did Barack Obama. And Barack Obama famously presided over uh, the removal of the very last armor unit, the very last American armor unit in 2013, which had been stationed on the continent since World War II. Um, Some 
eight months later, Russia invaded Ukraine. So, I, and I think you can draw a pretty uh, straight line between the reduced deterrent presence on the continent and um, what Russia engaged in. So, to the extent that Joe Biden has surrounded himself with people who understand reality, um, geopolitics of the region is very different than it was four years ago. It's going to be very difficult to recreate the conditions that existed in 2015. And that is all that will stall Joe Biden's hand. It's not going to be leaks out of this administration, leaks out of uh, Jerusalem. Um, uh, it's it's going to be, you know, the conditions on the ground, I would imagine. Abe, uh, as a as a uh, as a, uh, a student and critic and disheartened a person, extraordinarily disheartened by by the JCPOA, the Iran nuclear deal, uh, when it was struck, uh, you might be in a unique position to wonder at what might motivate a incoming Biden administration to try to enter into negotiations to stuff this genie back in the bottle. Well, I mean, you know, when when the Obama administration undertook this, I think there was a very sincere belief um, held by Obama himself that this was some sort of genuine good, that if that if the U.S. made the first overture in this sense, that that um, that was what the Iranian leadership was looking for and um the 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 rehabilitation of the Iranian leadership was really in the offing and was a good thing it was possible and all they needed was a sign of good faith and we could you know bring bring them into the you know community of of cooperative nations and all the rest of this um th- that i think has long since um flown the coop there are interested parties who have always been a part of the uh JCPOA machinations all sorts of um sort of uh, pro-Iranian groups, various peace groups and stuff that, that um, sort of existed to, to um, push that whole thing along. Um, They have not stopped campaigning for a return to this. There are also, of course, um, uh, many European commercial interests that, that want to, want to resume um, ties with, with Iran. But I think, um, generally speaking, I, I, I agree that um, so much has changed that for the uh, Biden administration to get to a point where they would have where they would really be able to um, implement an Obama type foreign policy in the Mideast would mean they would have to blow up some excellent things that they that they can't blow up that many people have no interest in them blowing up. I mean, um, they, they're not going to be able to uncouple. Israel from their new Arab allies. Um, no, but they could uncouple Israel from the United States. Well, they could, yeah. they could, but, but let's, let's, let's put it this way. The Iran deal was struck in 2015 or was signed in 2015. It is now, it is about to be 2021. The, the timeline of the Iran deal in terms of restraining Iran's nuclear ambition was anywhere from, eight to 12 years. In other words, the deal itself essentially was designed to hit pause on the Iranian nuclear program until the late 2020s, at which point it would be entirely legal and and unquestionable that Iran could develop a nuclear weapon if it wanted to and enrich nuclear, enrich uranium to the level that it was weaponized. So we're now six years down the road from that. So the runway, if you want to go back into the JCPOA, the runway 
is already half gone. So if the idea is you can go back to the table and get them to extend it another 11 or 12 years, I mean, you're, you're, first of all, you're negotiating from a weak position because you're already making it clear what you want at the end, at the end, right? You want essentially the same deal you had before. Why Iran would torture itself, uh, in, in, twist itself into knots to do that when there's no 150 to 150 billion dollar paycheck at the end of the rainbow, the way there was, uh, with the JCPOA is very unclear. And if what you can just get is a kind of five-year pause or six-year pause on paper, because of course the question now is, did they start enriching this uranium because we pulled out of the deal? And therefore they thought, well, the hell with it. We're just going to start doing it again. Or were they always going to do it? Which is what we thought. There was literally no reason to believe that they were going to stop enriching uranium. The whole thing with enriching uranium is you make the uranium and then you actually have to refine it in ways to bring it up to weapons grade level. And were they going to build the machines that were going to make that possible? They kept building new machines that kept speeding up the enrichment time. And I just want to remind people that that Iran was never compliant with the terms of the deal, even before Trump. Um, killed it. I mean, they, right. they they never allowed inspection an inspection but, regime that was supposed to be there to be there. Well, and this is where I think Abe's point is really crucial uh, when we think about how Biden is going to talk to the American people about his foreign policy going forward. We haven't had much discussion of foreign policy at all during this, you know, for obvious reasons. But it will. I've noticed this actually in media coverage. If you if you read mainstream media outlets, I read the Times, uh, the Washington Post. No one wants to mention the Abraham Accords if they can avoid it, right? If they talk about Trump, they deliberately avoid discussing the Abraham Accords. And that's for this reason. They cannot, you're right, Abe, they can't, they can't discuss foreign policy going forward with a message that was about restoring the Obama years calm without blowing up the Abraham Accords. And those were very popular. I mean, people who looked at that thought, wow, you know, here's where Trump thinking outside the box actually accomplished something that is is good for the world because it brings more peace. These these uh, alliances are, are good for the Middle East. The the Obama uh, Biden administration narrative in Iran doesn't fit with that. It just can't. There's no way to, to square that circle. Does there's, anybody there's, remember? I just want to make this point. Does anybody remember what happened to the enriched uranium that the Iranians had made that they were supposedly disposing of? Supposed to go to Russia. 15? It went to Russia. So for the last four years, the Democratic Party, the Biden Party line has been that Russia is now, you know, enemy number one. It's destroying our democracy. It's ending our elections. Putin is evil. Everything is terrible. So what what assurances do we have under these circumstances that uh, Putin and Russia are going to somehow be willing uh, players in an international compact to bring the Iranians to sweet reason and 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 once again restrain their ambitions in this way. He has. Well, no I mean, it's it, you know, I mean, it's most, most certainly in Moscow's interest to to reengage in that deal because they got a whole lot of benefits out of it. That's why they got the Russian reset, the faulty, you know, the notion that they were dismantling Syria's chemical weapons, the intervention in Syria. All that was an outgrowth of the Obama administration's desire to ingratiate itself with Moscow and to pay them a whole lot of money to get this uranium and uh, house, warehouse it, de-enrich de- it. So there's no reason to believe that Moscow would would blink at an opportunity to reassert its influence over the region with with Washington's 
uh, imprimatur. I mean, that's something that they would love to do. Um, we have a tendency in this country to think in foreign policy in very chauvinistic terms. Uh, the notion that we are, you know, the executors of events in the world. The Abraham Accords came about as a result of entropic forces in the region, mostly, in fact, as a result of the United States extricating itself from the region that brought this, this, you know, miracle about. And what, you know, we don't really talk about, which may be an inevitability. By the way, I think you need to spell that out because it's a little unclear. So the sure. entropic was Obama pulling out of the Middle East to saying that America did not want to play this role in the Middle East. And More than that, empowering Shia militias in right. places like Iraq right? Um, to cert- to supplement the Iraqi security forces, which in 2014 we found out were a paper tiger, and giving Iran a free hand in the region, terrifying all the Sunni powers. Right. So th- thus, creating the conditions under which the Saudis basically <clears throat> looking down the barrel of a possible Iranian nuclear threat started making serious backdoor deals and flaws with Israel because the United States said, we want to wash our hands of this. Which is why I'm bringing this up. up. But I only bring this up because the entropic forces were not the Trump administration, which apparently was involved in, not in reasserting American, you know, force in, in, in the Middle East or in relations between Israel and the Arabs, but in doing certain things that were indications that the world had changed, like recognizing Israeli sovereignty over Jerusalem, moving the embassy to Jerusalem, and making it clear that we were tilting firmly in the direction of Israel in the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. Anyway, and I bring ahead. this. Up, yeah, I bring this up because entropic forces should probably force us to contemplate something we've otherwise been reluctant to do, which is the likely inevitability of a Saudi bomb. Um, crash course program, purchase one off the shelf from Pakistan, the sort of stuff that kept American nuclear strategists up at night. Um, and we have to start thinking about that in realistic terms. And it may not be nearly as apocalyptic now as we perceived it to be. The threat being, one, perhaps, is the likelihood that the regime in uh, Riyadh isn't as stable as we want it to be. And there are quite a few elements inside the Saudi uh Saudi body politic that we certainly wouldn't want to come to power and we most definitely wouldn't want them to have nuclear technology. But barring that, the threat, as strategists perceived it to be, was in a nuclear multipolarity in the region. Um, A bipolar system, one pole versus another pole, is pretty stable and pretty easy to predict. That's the dynamic that prevailed during the Cold War. A multipolar dynamic is much more akin to the dynamic that prevailed before World War II where you have a bunch of powers that are roughly um, roughly parity and um, that yields to instability. But in a post-Abraham Accords world, we do kind of have something resembling bipolarity in the region. It's not nearly the multipolar uh, you know, uh, in dynamic that is impossible to predict and much more volatile than a bipolar dynamic. So perhaps, perhaps American strategic planners, in, in the absence of a military option to uh, neutralize the Iranian threat, which seems unlikely, um, midwife into existence something more along the lines of a stable bipolar dynamic in the region akin to what it prevails now in, in, for example, in the subcontinent. Right. Okay. So this is an important point because when there were discussions in the 2000s of America striking Iran. You know, this magazine published several articles on on the subject. We remember John McCain singing 
to the tune of Barbara Ann, bomb, 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 Iran. You remember that? Mm-hmm. So uh, the reason that there was an argument that the United States needed to bomb Iran in order to destroy its nuclear ambitions was precisely this, that if Iran gets the bomb, the Saudi- Saudis are going to get the bomb. And then you're going to have Iran with the bomb and the Saudis with the bomb and Israel with the bomb. And suddenly this incredibly volatile region where almost all the important wars of the world have broken out over the last 40 to 50 years, all of them, right? The Gulf War, the Iraq War, the Iran-Iraq War, the, uh, you know, Israel's, uh, you know, Israel's wars with the Palestinians and so on. Uh, The war, the Yemen uh, Saudi war, you know, all of this stuff, you know, this is not a good recipe for world stability or the survival of the planet if there are nuclear bombs flying all over the place. So the idea was we needed to step in and take a hand. And obviously, uh, the the extremely troubling situation uh, in the aftermath of our invasion of Iraq meant that uh, even George W. Bush wasn't going to go there. And now Israel and the Saudis have taken, you know, have taken it into their own hands. And you can almost imagine that there is a kind of implicit NATO here, which is to say, if Iran goes after Saudi Arabia, Israel may have to use its ultimate weapon against Iran in order to maintain some version of uh, deterrence or threaten to. Uh, and that is the ultimate reason why the Saudis and Israel may, in fact, make common cause before the Saudis try to get the bomb or find. I mean, the, the big question mark is how Jerusalem reacts to this. I can't imagine that there would be any appetite for allowing A, Iran to develop a bomb, B, delivery vehicle sufficient. Well, they, to, to, they haven't, right? This yeah. the, this assassination on the this assassination on the streets of Iran, which is which is against fair fair enough, is against. Al-Qaeda is yet another indication that Israel has a way of signaling to the Iranians that they can act at will inside Iran, unlike any other country that they stole this gigantic cache of information relating to the Iranian nuclear program two years ago. Does anybody remember that? These boxes and boxes that were literally taken out of Iran by Israel and brought, and Bibi Netanyahu sort of released them. They've been killing Iranian nuclear scientists. They, of course, used Stuxnet ten years ago to go after to to destroy the you know Iranian computer formulas and formulations, helping to get the bomb. They are they have made it clear to the Iranians that the Iranians cannot act at will inside their own country. That is a very important part of Israeli deterrence. Um, and why, why again, why Joe Biden would want to interfere with that when it takes the pressure off the United States to be the policeman in this particular struggle. But he has it because there's a very a strong and growing wing of his own party that does not want to see the level of support for Israel that that historically America has always given. And that is growing. And and that actually, the domestic politics of this, I think, is going to have a lot uh, more of a, an impact on him than, than Obama's kind of, I am the world's great healer uh, kind of worldview did on his administration. And I mean, I don't know, we, we still don't know who uh, Biden will be selecting in terms of the, uh, the people who will be making policy for him. But I think those choices will be really telling. If he picks a lot of old Obama people, 
then I think there's a lot of reason for concern about Iran policy. If he, but he's he's going to have to choose some people that are signaling a new direction here, right? Because things have changed. I mean, do you guys know who? I mean, we've seen all the usual names floated, Susan Rice and whatnot. But yeah. anyone unusual come up? Anyone sort of a, a more creative thinker who might not, you know. Quite the opposite. So what names have we seen? We've seen Tony Blinken, who was his national security advisor, uh, who's a very nice guy. I know him. Uh, His father, Alan, was actually on the board of of commentary in the 1980s, was Clinton's ambassador to Hungary. Um, You know, not uh, Donald Blinken, excuse me. Uh, Not not exactly a, um, you know, not a neocon per se, but certainly somebody with a Zionistic leanings and his, uh, as was true of, of, of uh, uh, Tony's stepfather, Samuel Pisar. Um, so there's him. And then there's, you know, Susan Rice, obviously. And I guess the-, the William the outside, Burns and Chris Coons. Chris Coons, like right. Chris so William Burns is just a, is just a kind of, um, you know, paper-pushing- conventional foggy bottom Carnegie endowment for peace now, but he was, uh, yeah. And, and Chris Coons, uh, who I suspect is going to get it, uh, unless it's Tony Blinken, because he'll be easy to confirm. And he's from a rock ribbed democratic state where the governor, I don't know what the, what the rule, but you know, there's no chance that he would lose his seat would go, would lose to a Republican, uh, if they named him, and he's obviously very close with with Biden, whose protege he is. So, Chris Coons or Tony Blinken, you could have Tony Blinken at National Security at, at at NSC, and you could have Coons at State because it'll take a day for Coons to get confirmed. That kind of thing. Uh, Susan Rice, uh, depending on the outcome of the Georgia specials, Susan Rice is may not be confirmable. Uh, and the Republicans may use such an effort that, that now you could, by the way, come up with a political theory that goes like this. Susan Rice, uh, being a black woman, uh, comes up to be secretary of state and the Republicans oppose her and Biden nominates her on purpose because even if she loses, he could then make her national security advisor because that's not a confirmable post. Um, but even if she loses, she, uh, they can use it. Like you see the Republicans are going after a black woman and one of you know, the most to... elite, educated, wealthy yeah. black women in the country, but yeah. no matter. <laughs> yeah. Uh, with a right wing son, by the way. But, um, <laughs> uh, interestingly enough, but, uh, but you could see this idea that because the Democrats are so in the grips of the, of the delusion that they can use, you know, racism as a tool to help them electorally, that maybe even Rice losing would be a would be a wise thing. By the way, there's a very interesting, not to not to keep like jumping off point here, but it's not really off point at this point. Uh, Nate Cohn of the New York Times has an analysis of the results in Georgia. And Georgia is an unusual state because when you submit your ballot, you uh, or do a ballot request or whatever it is, there is actually a box on which you can uh, announce your ethnicity. And apparently 90% of the ballots featured uh, people selecting their ethnicity. And so we sort of know who the people are who voted uh, by race. Um, and uh, it turns out that black turnout in uh, in Georgia in 2020 was lower 
than it has been since 2006. Lower. So the Stacey Abrams registering 800,000 people. Which we can now myth. refer to as the myth. Yes, the Stacey Abrams myth. myth. <laughs> uh, the, uh, just another myth. I mean, they're starting yeah, to know. starting to pile up. No, but this is fascinating because I assumed it was true. Like, how could you not assume it was true? Like, increased black turnout, Biden wins by 14,000 votes in Georgia. There it is. Guess what? It's white women in the suburbs yet again. Like, the anti-Trump coalition is not the Democratic coalition, which is what we were talking about with Steve yesterday. Yeah. And it consists of wine moms and yoga pants yep. well, who, and, who are very attuned to racial animus. Well, and I would suggest everyone take a look at the the nonprofit listings that uh, Stacey Abrams' organization will have to turn into the IRS in, in future years. I bet she did raise a lot of money off of them. The myth raises money, which actually, and that's been her job for the last few years, is raising money for her foundation. So, But it should. Like, in other words, like, it, <clears throat> it was a perfectly plausible argument, Right. But it turns out the reason that Georgia is going purple is that white liberals are moving to Georgia, not that not that longtime black residents of Georgia are voting in greater numbers. That simply is not the case. As it and there's out. a lot of affluence in the <clears throat> suburbs right. of Atlanta and Savannah. Very, very. Atlanta is one of the great booming metropolitan areas of of the United States, and it's a you know it's a it's a good place to live although the traffic apparently is really bad um but i'm just saying that we're now in an interesting situation which is democratic orthodoxy which is that we need black turn you know there are things that will gin gin up black turnout turn out not to work and if they use this theory that i just laid out to you about susan rice which i guarantee you is being floated around they will be making uh, an interesting uh, decision not based on the science because, you know, they believe in science, but this will not be based on the science. Let me pull back for a second. I want to talk to you guys about our first sponsor today, Headspace. Because, look, um, life can be stressful even under northern circumstances. 2020 is like beaten all Maybe you tried meditation before and it didn't work, or maybe you felt like you were doing it wrong. If mental health is part of your self-care plan this year, you owe it to yourself to try Headspace, your daily dose of mindfulness in the form of guided meditations and an easy-to-use app, one of the only meditation apps advancing the field of mindfulness and meditation through clinically validated research. So whatever the situation, Headspace can really help you feel better. Overwhelmed? Headspace has a three-minute SOS meditation for you. Need help falling asleep? Headspace's wind-down sessions their members swear by. And for parents, Headspace even has morning meditations you can do with your kids. Its approach to mindfulness can reduce stress, improve sleep, boost focus, and increase your overall sense of well-being. And Headspace is backed by 25 published studies on its benefits, 600,000 five-star reviews, and over 60 million downloads. Headspace makes it easy for you to build a life-changing meditation practice with mindfulness that works for you on your schedule anytime, anywhere. You deserve to feel better, and Headspace is meditation made simple. Go to headspace.com slash commentary. That's headspace.com slash commentary for a free one-month trial with access to Headspace's full library of meditations for every situation. This is the best deal offered right now, so head to headspace.com slash commentary today. Sorry, Noah, you were... Oh, just this is a good opportunity to really just touch on the Georgia Secretary of State news that we had yesterday. Yes. So the Secretary of State, a Republican, um, 
made several allegations, most of them expressions of um, real exhaustion. <laughs> you could absolutely sense how miserable he's been made by the position he's been put in by the Trump administration, by the Trump campaign, um, which is compelling them to do all, you know, as much as they can to reverse the verdict of voters in this state. Um, and I, he reserved nothing but contempt for uh, Representative Doug Collins, who is now on the Trump campaign as a, I, I think he's leading the legal uh, legal efforts here. And uh, he had really horrible things to say about uh, Doug Collins, most of which I believe, but that didn't make the news. What made the news is this notion that Senator Lindsey Graham had leveraged, had put pressure on him to invalidate legal votes um, in the effort to push Donald Trump over the top. I, I'm really skeptical of this. Maybe it's hopelessly naive to say that this was a miscommunication. Um, that's what Lindsey Graham's story is. And so far it's he said, she said. So everybody rushing to judgment here is really just indulging their biases. But the stakes are so low in Georgia. If Georgia were reversed, Joe Biden would still be president. For Lindsey Graham to exert that kind of pressure, very legally dubious uh, outcome that he's allegedly seeking here when the stakes are so low and the consequences are so high. And Lindsey Graham is a much more savvier operator than that. I mean, maybe I'm just being really naive here, but I think Occam's razor and Hanlon's razor suggest that this is a miscommunication and the secretary of state is in a terrible position and is exasperated by that position and misinterpreted these remarks. That's at least, it makes the most sense as opposed to Lindsey Graham putting it all on the table, all on the line for an outcome that wouldn't affect anything other than his own career. I just, I don't, I don't understand it. I, I think that this story is interesting because if Brad Raffensperger misread Lindsey Graham, and I suspect you're right that he did, there is nonetheless something about the fact that Lindsey Graham called him to talk about this in his position as chairman of the Senate Judiciary Committee that in and of itself has a, um, you know, that's a nice state you have, too bad if something were to happen to it, quality to it. Why is Lindsey Graham calling Raffensperger? He's got no role in this. He has literally no role in this. The Congress has a role in 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 southern states in validating some of their voting patterns because of the Voting Rights Act and because of consent decrees and various other things that have involved the Congress and the courts in ensuring racial balance in gerrymandering and various other things, right? But uh, why is Lindsey Graham calling Raffles? It's none of his business. It's that he's a senator from South Carolina, and so just calling him to say, what's going on here? How does it work? Can you explain it to me? Are there ballots that can be invalidated? Could you Can you overturn the results in, an, in, a, in a single county, which apparently is the, that he heard, the Secretary of State heard as requests. And uh, Graham may not have meant them that way. You can understand how in his exhaustion and sense of paranoia because of the fact that he has the apparatus of the presidency coming down on his head, uh, he might entirely have misunderstood appropriately because however you slice it, whatever Lindsey Graham did was not appropriate. I'm a fan of Lindsey Graham's. I don't like the way people talk about Lindsey Graham. Um, 
but uh, this was not right. And I, I just don't see how it was right. I don't know what a senator from South Carolina is doing calling the Secretary of State of Georgia on the phone and asking him questions that are not in his writ because he may be head of the Senate Judiciary Committee, but they are not in his writ. That's that's what I would say. Uh, and I speak as a fan of Lindsey Graham's, but I'm disappointed by this. And That's fair, but I mean, like the ultimate headline here is, didn't work. You know, everything they're trying isn't working. None of it's working. It's not going to work. The election's over. Right. Republicans aren't bowing to this authoritarian yeah, this guy, menace this in Washington. Looking, this guy is looking, has every reason to think that his life and his career are being destroyed by this absolutely outrageous set of nonsense allegations where you have this lawyer, Lynn Wood, who is now taking up the cudgel for the for the idea that the election in Georgia was stolen, calling on the arrest and jailing of Governor Brian Kemp, who last I heard stole the election for from Stacey Abrams. That was what I heard in 2018 was that Brian Kemp had stolen the election for Republicans. Now, apparently, he's stolen the election for Democrats and Lynn Wood who is some lunatic who actually did a good thing 24 years ago by representing Richard Jewell, uh, you know, against um, the FBI, against the leaks by the FBI to the media about how Richard Jewell had, had committed the, the, the uh, bombings at the Olympics in 96 has now just gone full bore. He and Sidney Powell, who was Michael Flynn's lawyer, who are claiming fantastical global schemes now Sidney Powell has gone and said it's not just the Dominion voting machines that have stolen the votes, but this is glo- this is going on in other countries. It's an entire system of vote theft, country by country, and um, tens of millions of people, it appears, are believing what is being peddled here. This is an outrage. People are being defamed. People are being slandered. Careers are likely going to be ruined over this, like Raffensperger. Maybe Raffensperger has, has more political ambitions in Georgia as a, as a, as a Republican. How is he going to survive this? How is he just going to survive the, the, sle- the sleaze and slime that's been poured over his head with you know low in, low information voters who will just remember that he was bad to Trump in the aftermath of the election if he wants to run again? So that's my that's my rant of the moment. The you know the the voting machines being a global conspiracy was an interesting twist, but an understandable one because conspiracy theories become weirdly more believable at at the micro level when there's a macro explanation that can be explained away as showing nonpartisanship, right? So if if the machines themselves are being are, are being rigged then it doesn't matter if they're being rigged for Trump or against him. It's just they're rigged. The system is rigged and the sort of conspiracy theory grows and people can sort of plausibly rationalize to themselves embracing a conspiracy theory in the same way that anti-vaxxers do, I should add. Um, That's a very good analogy. It's it's the same sort of mindset, which is the more global the conspiracy, the more believable because the more uh, rationalizations you can make for not being ignorant and partisan and foolish for accepting it. But none of this makes any sense. A, it still wouldn't overturn the election. And B, why are we doing this in Georgia? And okay. Not Arizona, for what example. Do you, what do you same, same dynamic prevail and a lower margin of victory for Biden. What do you mean it doesn't make sense? 
It makes uh, perfect I mean, sense, it makes no sense because Trump is trying to create a narrative according to which the election was stolen from him. And there have so far been 24, there have been 25 court decisions across all of these states and Trump has prevailed or the Trump argument has prevailed in one and he's lost in 24 and today he's about to lose in his 25th in Pennsylvania, where one notices that his legal team attempted to resign from his case after amending a complaint to remove the complaint that was the central complaint of the Pennsylvania case, which is that Republican observers weren't allowed to watch the vote counting, which was a lie and is not true. And once they actually had to stand in front of a judge and argue something they knew to be untrue, every one of those lawyers was subject to disbarment. And they decided they couldn't do it because they because don't think that the you know activist liberals who are watching this aren't going to go tooth and nail to try to get them disbarred if they make an argument they know to be false in front of a judge in a courtroom. So they amended their complaint and then said, "We want to leave." And the judge said, "Oh, you can't leave." Sorry, I know you guys have this new new lawyer, but you can't just walk away from a case. You filed the brief. You filed the you filed the complaint. So once again, every you know this you know Trump has a fascinating ability not only to you know like uh, harm his enemies, right? Like Flake and Corker and people like that, whom he deems to be a threat to him or nasty to him or something like that, and kind of ends their careers. But even the people who are working for him, he and his people make demands on that are that end up getting them in huge amounts of trouble. And these lawyers are going to be in huge amounts of trouble. We'll see what happens when they go into court today and try to open their mouth and say something. You got judges saying to them in Michigan things like, oh, come on. I mean, literally, a judge in Michigan, when this guy said, you know, and, and they have all these individual cases of people saying that they saw voter fraud, and then when you put a slight pressure on it, it turns out they saw a guy in a truck standing with a, for, with a license plate from out of state near the polling place. So does it, Trump really should have hired because he's behaving like a celebrity behaves. When a celebrity reads a nasty story about themselves in the newspaper, they want a, their celebrity lawyer to sue the newspaper because how dare they say these very true nefarious thing about me. Trump kind of behaves like he's a celebrity whose lawyer should argue whatever he thinks, whatever he's offended by. But unfortunately, he's the press was the president. And this is election law. And it's very uh, technical. And there, there are rules. And but it, I do I, I'm, I'm laughing. But I mean, the other side of this is that, John, to your point that, you know, these people could get disbarred. There were protests here in Washington over the weekend. They're protesting the law firms that were suspected to be representing Trump in legal cases. They were spray painting their office buildings and, you know, sort of left left wing activists were attacking these law firms and, you know, threatening them because they were representing uh, the president, which I think is kind of abominable. But he does behave like a celebrity in this case. He's mad. He's angry. He wants to lash out. But there, he doesn't have a legal case to make. So he's just and turning through the court system. And if you're also, it's an, oh, sorry. Well, just sorry. if you're one of these lawyers, I mean, you know, it's one thing uh, a week ago, a week and a half ago to have, you know, sort of tried to mount this case for the president. But Trump himself is running out of steam with this fight already. So now so now you're going to go and and possibly risk 
uh, being disbarred or humiliated for the, for, for what, for what, for the last, you know, 48 hours for the last gasp of this, of this completely dead, absurd cause. Right. And, you know, Christine, you make it, you make an important point about sort of celebrity law, because of course, most of those are like civil, you know, they're like filed civil cases and then yeah, they're you, for damages, you file it, right. you file it. And like, you know, you charge your, you bill your thousand dollars an hour to your idiot client. And then it goes to a courtroom and the judge dismisses it without, it just dismisses the case and it's over with. It's not some high profile effort to deal with the most important thing that happened in the United States in 2020, um, where you can't just, you know, humor somebody by writing a nonsense brief and then get a pat on the head like this is getting attention and you are putting your head into the guillotine right. here. So let's talk a little bit about our December issue uh, because we're just bringing it out today. And each of my um, colleagues here has a remarkable piece in this issue. Abe, let's talk about your book review, which leads our uh, politics and ideas section Review of Rod Dreher's Live Not by Lies. Sure. So um, Rod Dreher, who's a, a sort of a friend of ours, um, has um, uh, uh, written a, a book, Live Not by Lies. Um, the title is um, a quote from um, Alexander Solzhenitsyn. Um, and um, Dreher's point here is that um, the U.S. is on the verge of uh, kind of soft totalitarianism, um, uh, whereby there is an ideological force that um, seeks to remake reality um, and uh, uh, force uh, all of us to conform to it. He's talking here, of course, about uh, radical leftists and um, their versions of um, everything from, uh, I don't know, um, gender to to uh, social justice uh, on on racial issues and the and the supposed injustice of the American system and uh, the rest of it and what he does in the book is he looks toward um, the Christian dissidents in the Soviet Union what they did how they how they not only resisted the uh, hard totalitarianism and he and and Dreher makes that distinction between the hard totalitarianism of the Soviet Union and and the soft totalitarianism of um, what we face, what what they did to resist that, but also to preserve their faith. So it is a, it is a book aimed at Christians, but I think people of faith generally. Um, and um, there are uh, the lessons uh, that he takes away from their lives and and uh, their efforts um, are um, essentially to um, uh, uh, use consider the family the sort of first fighting unit against the uh, uh, larger. Totalitarianist, totalitarian regime or um, uh, reality, um, show solidarity to others uh, uh, in dissent, to preserve cultural memory, because as he points out, um, part of totalitarianism is to destroy um, the, what the current reality, and which is, I think, applies uh, perfectly here. Uh, in the case of the U.S., as we see, you know, all the, the tearing down of statues and the destruction of history and the rewriting of history generally to, to preserve that cultural memory. Um, uh, there are others uh, that I'm, I'm forgetting in the, in the moment, but um, and, and essentially to not live within the lie that 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 the revolutionaries try to assert. Christine, you've written a piece that we call You're White and You're White and You're White. <laughs> 
uh, about <laughs> uh, the the election. Uh, uh, explain why we called it that and why that's important. Actually, it, it builds uh, quite a bit on what Abe was just uh, describing about Rod's book. Um, and, it, and it was prompted by our very fun uh, experimental uh, live blogging the election night results, where I started noticing that when um, when results that surprised liberal commentators came in, such as uh, Hispanic voters in places like Florida and Texas, going much more for Trump than was predicted in the polls, um, the reaction wasn't, wow, boy, we didn't see that coming, or, oh, the polls might be wrong. The reaction on the left for a lot of commentators was, well, they're not really uh, Hispanic. They're actually more like white people. So in real time, you could see a narrative developing about Venezuelan Americans, uh, Cuban Americans, uh, and also actually quite a lot of uh, Latino and Hispanic communities along the border in Texas, that they weren't really ethnic because they didn't vote for the Democrat. And I was fascinated by this. And so uh, dug a little deeper. It, I, I looked a little bit at the exit polls, which, you know, as we know, are not 100% reliable, but have shown a pretty consistent trend that Trump did better with certain minority groups than he was expected to do and, and did better than he had with them in 2016. So uh, my, I posit a kind of theory, since this was a kind of media critique, that we're actually going to see a lot more of that in the years to come. Because rather than grapple with the complicated realities of how race and ethnicity and uh, national origin play out uh, politically, the media would much rather retreat to their very comfortable anti-racist uh, tropes about whiteness and white supremacy. So if you don't vote, and, and as Joe Biden warned us all, you know, if you if you if you uh, don't vote for me, you ain't black. That is going to be an operating theory, I fear, in the years to come with the media, and I think we will see it um, in other areas as well. We we see it in educational policy and educational uh, decision making, where Asian Americans are now considered white. They used to be white adjacent. Now they're often lumped in with white students. Um, and measured against people of color. So I think the column explores that with the media specifically, but I think it's a larger trend we should keep our eye on. Right. Now, Noah, um, building on Christine's observations, we have all kinds of evidence that the real dividing line in this election, and maybe the dividing line of our time, is college education. That if, if there's one constant here, suburban, urban, white, black, but that, that, that people who do not go to college, um, are much more likely to be Trump voters or Republican voters than people who do go to college. And certainly people who, who, who graduate from college, um, where there seems to be an overwhelming move. Uh, into the democratic camp, which, which was, which has not been, was not true until, until really the last decade. But you've written a piece that we call All Are Punished, uh, using the line of the prince at the end of, uh, Romeo and Juliet, um, to, to describe, uh, the phenomenon of this election that we've been talking about for, for two weeks, which is these two waves crashing into each other the red wave the blue wave that was then met by a red wave the blue wave bringing biden into the presidency and the red wave uh harming democratic hopes and ambitions in the senate the house and at the state levels yeah that piece um attempts to tell the story of the last four years of the trump administration in electoral terms uh, it begins at the dawn of the Trump administration in which he entered office with a fair uh, amount of opportunity to triangulate some uh, democratic themes, some progressive themes, and really eat into their own turf 
uh, in narrative terms and in, in political terms. And he uh, sacrificed that opportunity to ingratiate himself with his own base voters, which was a trait that you saw throughout the Trump administration. And it manifested in 2018 in this spectacular backlash in places that had been traditionally Republican turf. Um, as you said, um, college educated voters were not certainly, you know, a, a guaranteed Democratic constituency. In fact, the extent to which they become a Democratic constituency is evident in the very first thing that people around Joe Biden are talking about now is, is student debt relief forgiveness, um, which is pure constituency maintenance and uh, terrible policy, but uh, acknowledges at least the backbone of the Democratic coalition here. Um, and it was after 2018 that there was an assumption that was sent by the electorate that anti-Trump, hate Trump, don't like Trump, punish anything that has to do with Trump. But after, but there was another signal that was sent by the electorate that was largely missed with the exception of people like us who noticed that the progressive resurgence that we were supposed to see, and that was manifested in the, the, the rise of the squad, um, was actually not indicative of the results across the country progressive candidates who were, you know, litmus tests to gauge the strength of the progressive uh, surge at the polls lost in at state levels and in districts that were competitive. Progressivism wasn't a winner. In fact, it was just the opposite. But that signal was not heeded. Um, the media ignored it and the Democratic Party ignored it. They committed themselves to this makeover um, to make themselves into this, you know, light socialism. Um, and to capitalize on the star power of people like Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. And what we saw in 2020 was a backlash against everything, a backlash against Donald Trump, a backlash against progressivism. It was, and, and it resulted in the kind of turnout that you see from people who are really existentially terrified of the future of, of the political um, consensus on both sides. And the result was, a little bit more strength for for the anti-Trump forces, and but a total repudiation in many ways of the progressive idea across the primaries, across the general. The 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 outcome here has been pretty clear to the point now that Democrats can't even really ignore it. Although I have no illusions about their desire to ignore it, they'll probably figure out a way to convince themselves that what happened didn't happen down the line. But right now they're reckoning with uh, what they anticipated would be a real um, bonanza in electoral terms. And it did not materialize in part because what they're offering is just as unpalatable to the American voter as what Donald Trump was offering. You know, in the live not by lies sense, we have an interesting thing, which is reality is telling us, I think, unambiguously one thing, which is what, what you say, that defunding the police, talking about socialism, all of that, was a complete hindrance to democratic hopes. It is leading to uh, a, uh, a completely paralyzed house, tiny house majority um, that you know can't afford to lose three people in a vote if the bill is to go on to a Senate that may not even take it up because the Senate is probably going to be in Republican hands uh, once the Biden presidency begins. Um, but it is very difficult for the media to uh, take this up and deal with it as a reality because of the cultural and political dynamic uh, of our moment, which is that since the squad, since progressivism is led by young, woke people of color, 
who are fighting the good fight against police brutality and income inequality and all of these causes, um, the the media that aren't simply handmaidens to these ta- to these ideas um, uh, might be terrified to take them on. Terrified because they don't want to be on the other side from the uh, powerful socially media driven fans of these voices and arguments, and they're afraid of their own staffs that will consider any effort to offer critical perspectives on these matters uh, unsafe, will make the people inside the New York Times and other places feel unsafe if they should offer questions about this. And so we are we are in a very interesting moment in which Democrats may be blinding themselves to an absolute reality, which is what we thought was happening over the summer, uh, and turns out to be true, though we really didn't have any data to suggest it was. And uh, because they are much more credulous toward the mainstream media than they should be, despite the fact that they say the media is corporate and terrible and all of that, they, they still believe what they read. Um, that the fact that they're not that that they're not going to get honest evaluations, for the most part of the of the electoral dangers facing the Democratic coalition, they're likely to be surprised and surprised and surprised again in ways that will not enhance them and their own addiction to focusing on Trump and the evils of Republicans is a crutch that will serve to enhance that very blindness uh if you can enhance blindness i guess if you're blind you can't get more blind um or you could be colorblind or you know or or like you know have have myopia but then you can go entirely blind or something like that anyway whatever the image is but that's again i mean that's sort of why if donald trump had won and the election results down ballot were what they were the democratic narrative would be that the country is lost the country is lost to authoritarianism it is irredeemable beyond hope and but yeah. they can't they can't allow themselves but that they are Biden they're did saying win. it's racist no, but they, they are. are saying it's irredeemably they racist are. paul krugman said the results disappointed him charles blow said the results are horrible like this is a line progressives will allow themselves that narrative. Anybody else who's actually committed to winning races cannot, in part because the narrative is disputed by the the presidential race. But they're not. They're not. They are discussing amongst themselves how how and how to navigate this environment in ways that are much more rational than Paul Krugman would allow. Well, that's what you say. But I'm telling you that they have trouble dealing with this. Remember... This is a weird analog to Jim DeMint, the senator from South Carolina, who then went on to run the Heritage Foundation and was fired, saying in 2013 that he would rather have 30 good Republicans in the Senate than 60 rhinos. Just people think about what that means for a minute. It would be really good to have 30 senators so that you literally couldn't get anything passed and Democrats could do anything they wanted than 60 Republicans who agree with you 75% of the time. That is the logic of the ideologue looking at politics, and Democrats are going in that direction, and don't think they're not, because the whole point about the squad and what you're talking about with progressives is what they're doing is what uh, you know Republicans did in 2009, 2010, 2012, 2014, which is they are going to knock off centrist Democrats 
in seat after seat after seat all over the country in safe seats. And therefore, they are going to radicalize their caucus, uh, having won safe seats, and continue to endanger people who are sitting in seats that Republicans can win by pushing the, the Democratic agenda so far to the left that they're going to have real trouble defending themselves in some of these places. Anyway, that's my take. Please read these pieces. They're going to be up shortly, uh, if they're not already, at commentarymagazine.com. Christine's You're White and You're White and Your Abe's Review of Live Not by Lies. Noah's piece, All Are Punished. I have a I have a short piece there, too, which uh, in which I uh, vent a little bit of what I was venting a little earlier uh, about the post-election uh, shenanigans. Um, there's a lot of other great stuff we'll talk about uh, during the rest of the week. Uh, until then, uh, we will... See you tomorrow. I'm John Podhoritz for Noah, Abe, and Christine. Keep the candle burning.